Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Oh, and welcome to How to Exit. Today, I'm here with two guests. I have Waleed Costandi and Gia Salento. Thank you for being on the show. We have a special guest here today. I'm glad to be here. I know we're both really glad to be here. Let's see. Getting started in m and I was, for me, part of a pivot, although I had bought and exited a couple of companies before that and done several startups. The real jump into was at the beginning of COVID. So it's actually past my three-year mark when I started and actively pursuing a role in the M&A world. A lot of my business had been in person, working with clients and in my publishing company and in my marketing agency. So that kind of, <laughs> I had to find something else to do. And I found this world really interesting and very broad spectrum of people and businesses. And I jumped right in. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Awesome. Waleed, how did you get started? Hey, it's great to be here, Ron. Thank you also. Well, I got started in the 90s. I started an ISP with a friend of mine, and that's when we used to have dial-up modem. So that was the first company I started, and we sold it in 2000. And um, I went off on my own. I got into real estate. So I've always been kind of an entrepreneur. But after having a stint of a full-time job as an IT director, I really want to get back into owning companies again. So I started looking at buying companies and I came across the Harbor Club and that's how I think we all met in the end. And I was like, oh, this is great. So then since 2021, I've been deeply involved in that and helping people profit more in their companies. And that's how G and I, we started to work together to helping entrepreneurs get out of their business and make a lot of money. And at the same time, we work with them to make a lot of money too. But we want them to, of course, make the lion's share. It's their business they started. And full disclosure to all our listeners out there, the three of us have worked together before. So one of the things that's unique and I like about both of you guys is one of the things we jumped into right after taking a course on this or learning what this world is, world of mergers and acquisitions, is one of the more complex strategies, right? We started a roll-up, a more advanced roll-up than probably most and we worked on that for, for a while together. No fear in like trying cool things, complex things that would be considered a little more advanced in the mergers and acquisition space right off the bat. We all work together on those. Let's jump into a little bit about what's happened since then. I, mean, I know we worked together, I think that was almost a year and a half, two years ago now that we finished that project up. But what are you guys working on now? I kind of know, but let's, the listeners kind of, let's start off with the, I guess, I don't want to lead into anything, but let's start off with kind of the big project you're working on together in the roll-up phase, and then we'll talk about some other cool stuff you guys are working on. Sure. We've been working on a chocolate roll-up. We jumped into the roll-up again, and we spent about a year 
or so, maybe nine months doing research on different industries, figuring out, actually, we used one of your templates for identifying industries. And Waleed, with his love of spreadsheets, worked with that to, to make it something that we could use for our specific needs. And then we, the chocolate industry bubbled up to be the number one industry that met all of our parameters. And we had quite a few parameters. So we started putting together, we've worked in that for about six months, I guess. It's interesting is I love doing tools like that. I use Waleed as an example. Somebody asked for a, a similar spreadsheet I'd done on something else, and I gave it to him instantly. Like, oh, you don't want any money for this or anything? It's like, no, whatever you do to it, I want to see on the other end. And the reason I give away spreadsheets yeah. and stuff that I come up with is I come up with a decent idea, and then I hand it to people Waleed, and it comes back better. <laughs> we should touch on that for a little bit, because if we're some out there as entrepreneur listening to this, I mean, it's very important besides being disciplined and focused. One of those things that supports that is making the right decisions. And so Ron's sheet had things like valuation, like a criteria for the industry, right? Valuation multiples, are there legal issues in the industry? Are there buyers available? We added stuff like ESG focus. Is it mature competition? That kind of stuff. And so we added a few things to Ron's sheet and then we sorted them by like higher priority. And then we just had check boxes. And then if you meet all the check boxes, you get a score. So we went through like literally 150 industries is what we looked at. Yeah. And then in this season, and then we came up with a score, a weighted scoring system. And then in the end, we got a one number from like 80 to 160 or something. And then we just took the highest ranking and then I think dental and home healthcare were near the top also. And then the chocolate industry yeah. was in the top. We were like, ooh, that's going to be, it's very fragmented. It's going to be fun and interesting. And when you know, you're done, you can, and when you're done, you can do the dental one, right? You can do the chocolate roll up, create a bunch of customers <laughs> for the dental roll up later. Well, why not? Assuming the industry hasn't shifted that much. I like to joke yeah. and on stuff, but yeah, the cool thing was, is they sent that spreadsheet over to you. And the first thing you said when you seen it was like, well, we probably should weight these. And I was like, yeah, I, I wanted to wait, do the weighted average thing, but I didn't know how to do that in Excel. And that, and it came back with the, the weighted average. And now I looked at your formulas and go, oh, yeah, now I know how to, like, now I can change the weights of them for myself and weight things. Because every one of us have different criteria. To me, it's more important that, and what's important to me is you know, how liable is something, right? Because I yeah. have other assets to protect. I have a family and kids that. I don't want to risk things that I've accomplished as I've already made by a uh, purchase I'm going to, about to make. So those were probably heavier weighted for me than somebody who's like, I don't have any other assets and I'm not worried about the liability. How much money does it make? The ability to change those weighted averages is going to be good for anybody that sees that. Let's go on from there. Totally going to resist any chocolate jokes, right? Like the chocolate roll-up jokes. We're going to move on from there. Somebody <laughs> said, well, one of my other friends, why don't you jump in on the chocolate roll-up with them? I was like, I'm already freaking overweight. I don't going to work every day. I have to resist chocolate constantly. I was like, I always ask the wife, do we have any chocolate yeah. in the house? Last thing I want to do is work every single day. <laughs> <laughs> on a project talking about you chocolate. Know, and the companies we talk to in the chocolate industry, I mean, it's really predominantly dark chocolate. When you're looking at slightly higher priced or significantly higher priced chocolate, it just tends to be dark. Although there's a lot of fine, very fine book chocolates out there. And with dark chocolate, you just need a bite or two and you're satisfied. It's like coffee if you don't mind the bitterness or you can get even sweeter dark chocolate. Now, in my case, I can eat like a whole bar of dark chocolate. So I don't know how I'm the exception. <laughs> but generally, you tend to eat less because it's, you get satiated from that. 
Uh, so you've been working on that for a little while now. Are you guys getting traction? I know last time I heard you guys have some real traction in that realm and you're actually got people interested in it. So are you looking at all 50 states or international? What's the search parameters for the chocolate roll-up? Well, one thing we did is, and this was, of course, under Gia's great advice, is that we decided to stay a little bit more focused towards our half of the country because it's just too big and there's so many, so many opportunities. So we did focus on the right half of the country. And we have we have a lot of people that we're talking to and one that we got very close to, the one we got very close to is out west. But we're at a point now where we decided to deep dive into each company more so we can have better conversations with them. So that's the stage we're at now. We're trying to build those deeper conversations, understanding their issues and concerns and growth. Because the first step for us in building the roll-up is finding a really good anchor partner. So which company wants to be the heart of it? And it's these anchors we've got to talk to. And of course, these are multi-million dollar companies. So we're using the Harbor Club method. It's everybody thinks that they're Hershey, but you know some people don't think that. So when we are talking in more close details, these are the companies we're looking for that are open to partner with us and want to grow and know there's opportunities in acquisition, and that's working with them. So in a lot of industries, they have their own language, their own mindset and stuff. So if I think, for instance, like if you're looking around, you're looking at engineering companies, they literally have their own language on stuff. Do the chocolatiers, what's the, like the kind of psychographics and demographics of the, the typical chocolatier owner? Were they originally blue collar? Who is it that you're talking? I've got my mind built a, like a persona or like who a chocolatier owner would be. And I'm wondering if it's wrong. Like, so what are the typical owners you're coming across? Okay, so there's a couple of different personas. Number one is the general worker person, like either employee or executive, middle class, upper middle class, who just loves chocolate and decides, you know what? I love chocolate. I'm going to become a chocolatier. Now, there's two routes. Like, they're not all chocolatiers. You have chocolatiers, you have chocolate makers. They're very distinct. Chocolatier gets ready-made chocolate, even though it's very high quality from different places, but it's ready-made. And then they have the recipe on when they when they add the combinations of flavors to it and whether they convert dark yeah. chocolate to milk chocolate, if they do that, or if they how they paint it and so forth, or do they mass produce or not mass produce. And then you have the chocolate maker that actually buy either unroasted or roasted cacao or cacao nibs, and then they grind it or conch it and then produce from that their own their own chocolate, the chocolate maker. So all demographics, they kind of move into one of these two. Yeah. And then you also have the purely business type that are took over a business and are just making talk as a business and want to scale up. And from the ones that want to scale up, many of them would fit into our idea of how to grow a chocolate company. And a lot of the chocolatiers or chocolate makers that, that went in for the passion, a certain percentage of them also will have that mindset also. Although they tend to, our conversations, and they tend to want to stay small and just with their family and two employees and make chocolate. And those are, they're wonderful. They make amazing, delicious chocolates. Beating them at all the conferences is just mind-blowing. But they're not our, they can't be partners with us because they have no desire. They don't have a preference to, to grow, right? So we want the ones that have the, 
ambition to grow and are very business aggressive. And the language they speak is the ones that own the business. I want to grow the business. They talk more like business expansion and understand capitalization, recipes, cost, marketing, expansion. We can talk to them more in that sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of them, even the people who are business, more business focused, are still passionate about chocolate. And there's a lot, there's some divisiveness in the industry. There's different perspectives about how the growers are treated and things of that nature, similar to coffee, because there's that raw product and then there are supply chain issues. So there, there is a definite lingo, as Waleed said, there's chocolate maker versus chocolatier and bean to bar and what do all these things mean? So there's a, an educational piece that we've had to go through and a chocolatier doesn't want to be called a chocolate maker. Yeah. <laughs> but the passion for the cacao and for the end product and for people having, I think that that transcends the entire industry. They're very passionate about it. Very sincerely I passionate. Know that, that coffee can be grown across multiple areas and stuff. What about cacao? Is it just limited to a couple or is there quite a few areas of the world that you can grow? All over, like West Africa is a major growing area, South America, Central America, even as far as India. Asia, has come India. Too, yeah. Right? So, yeah. That's interesting. And, and, because it's, you're naming off a bunch of places where it's very common to get coffee too. I wonder if it's the same climate that needed yeah, to grow it coffee as it needs to. I think it is. It's a very similar climate and you have to farm it and it has trees. So it's a very similar kind of industry Industry in that way. So I, I looked at the coffee industry a few years ago. When you guys are like doing their rollout thing, I was like, okay, what would I do if I was doing it? And coffee was on my top of my list, mostly for buying the roasting businesses and turning them into subscription-based models. But one of the reasons I kind of pulled out of it is there is a lot of corruption in the coffee industry and there's a lot of markup for the middlemen where the farmers get nothing and stuff is that true in the cacao is it you got to really watch out that the farmers being taken care of because in the coffee industry it's very common the farmers are taken advantage of the majority of the money goes to the middlemen yeah i think it's i think it's similar i know that there are movements to to treat the farmers well and there are some farmers that have started and that, that create their own mm -hmm. bars so that they can have a piece of that part of the supply mm -hmm. chain. And I think that there's a recognition of it throughout the industry, too, to make sure that the growers are, and the farmers are treated well. So it just depends on where they are in the world and how much of a voice they have. But there is an outcry. There is a stand. Yeah, I mean... Ron, you hit the nail on the head with that. And what Giga and I have observed is that even the totally business-focused chocolate makers, like Giga said, they do have a focus on a passion for chocolate. And almost every single one has a focus toward fair trade. The farmers has, have really been abused by monopolistic middlemen that pay them pennies and then they sell it for a high profit. That is, that has begun to shift so that a lot of chocolatiers and, ch and chocolate makers are actually buying chocolate directly from like co-ops where the farmers form co-ops and then they get like much higher rate for the chocolate. But the fair trade movement among chocolate makers and chocolatiers who only want to source their chocolate from large chocolate makers that support fair trade is it's really humbling how much they have a passion for that it is it's, it's quite a good thing they're doing and we have talked to at least one farmer and some growers too so mm -hmm. it's and getting gotten that that firsthand 
view, yeah. I guess, the first-hand insight. So, so you guys are doing a roll-up. The plan is to build a chocolate entity that can actually help all the business owners grow. And then yeah. within, what's your timeline? Three years, five years, hit a certain performance metrics and then exit? Or what's the overall time frame? As you get into this business, you realize that you can tell a time frame and it's really hard to hit because you can't always force the growth in any industry. In certain industries, you can tweak the numbers if it's digital, social software that can be grown or adjusted. But in, in something hard, physical, like chocolate making, our target is it's going to be a minimum of three-year run and then it could be up to five years. But definitely our objective is to have an equity stake and we want the company owners to have a majority stake and grow it. We'll be making money along the way. We'll be making dividend and management fees along the way. But in the end, the point is to reach an exit. And then a lot of these companies we're working with, their goal is also to have an exit. If they don't have an exit in mind, then they're either not a good fit or we must have a certain agreement that there's going to be a buyout within three years or five years. Let's talk about some of the other stuff you guys are working on because we got a lot of interesting areas to cover here. I mean, you did the, we did the marketing roll-up together. You've both bought and sold companies. What have you learned over the years that you're applying to the current roll-up and that you're applying to future acquisitions? And we'll talk about your next project here in a second. But what are some of the lessons learned that you're like, okay, I'm going to make sure all these chocolate companies, they don't have to do this because I've already seen it. It's already hurt me and I don't want anybody else to get there. Do you have any lessons to learn from prior experience? Well, I mean, the main thing is treat everybody well. Be transparent as possible with the entire stakeholder group as much as you can legally and whatever. I mean, those are some overarching mm -hmm. things that that come out of anything. It's not always going it's not always going to work out the way you think it is. So be prepared to be flexible and kind of try to keep figuring out what's going to benefit everybody the most. Off what the about uh, like their financials and stuff are you seeing that when these companies are talking to you, they're put together, like their financials are really well put together. Or you're seeing it's like any other industry where they're barely good enough to do their own taxes, but their financials aren't ready for any type of exit or anything. Are you seeing stuff in that realm? Well, I mean, I just want to go back to the first question, Ron. If okay. you don't like when Gio was talking about transparency, we know one of the things we've learned is, and I've learned this hard way a couple of times, is that you need to be upfront with all your deal structure people don't want surprises. So it can make the first few conversations awkward, but you really have to be upfront saying, I want X, Y, Z. These are my expectations. What are your expectations? Like, well, we want Z, Y, X. That's what we want at all. So it's opposite. And then you reach middle ground. So either you walk away or you, or you work. But if you've been working at it for months and then you're like, okay, let's sign a deal and here's what we want. And they balk at it. It's <laughs> like, you got to be upfront with that stuff, right? You're not going to give a referral to someone and then come back a year later and say, where's my fee? You do the referral and up front, and then you get your commission set up front, and that's how you do business. So that was a very important lesson. And definitely another thing we I learned is that you have to deliver. You can't not deliver. If you say something, it's as good as a promise. Then it's yeah. like, like, I'll get back to you next week. And you then at 10 days goes by, you already broke your promise. It's okay. like you got to deliver no matter how small or how big. So you, integrity. Yeah, integrity. that integrity is in that trust yeah. is... It's hard to build and very simple to, uh, to ruin. Easy to empty that bank account is, who is that? Seven Habits. 
I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but yeah. Seven Habits. <laughs> Stephen Covey. I actually met the man and have a few autographs of, of, of in his Ooh. books. Yeah. Let's go into, I know you guys are working on a pretty cool project coming up. I know it's not completely done, but let's spend some time on what you're building, why you're building it, why the market kind of needs it and stuff. So I'll let either one of you kind of make the, we'll leak it out here first type of announcement of what you're working on yeah. and we'll go from there. I'm really excited about this. In the first roll up we did, one of the, in the marketing industry, one of the things that became very clear to me was that. And also with the work I've done and the companies that I've acquired and then exited, you don't always get the payoff when you leave, the payoff that you want or they think you deserve. So there's a whole, a disparity. And part of what we want to do with the immense amount of baby boomer business owners who are leaving some of them have not gotten their companies to the place where they want them to be, where they're going to get that, where they're going to be able to cash out with what they want. And I think they deserve it. I think if you're not at the place where you want to be, if your company isn't big enough yet, and you're not going to get the amount of money you want for it, I want to help. And I can help. And Waleed and I have come together on that. If you want that, the time, if you're tired of, even if you're not a baby boomer, but if you're tired of putting your time into the business and missing out on that time with your kids and your family, and you just kind of want your time back, or you want to retire and move on to that next phase of your life, you kind of have to grow your company to the point where you're going to be able to ask for the price that you want, where you're going to be able to ask for the cash that you want. And that's why we developed this company called Cash Out Wealthy. I mean, a program. The program that we've been working on, and it's all about how do you sell your business? We've created a mini course called How Do You Sell Your Business in a Buyer's Market? And we're both really excited about bringing this program to people because we did notice a need in the market. So did I capture that well, Waleed? Are you, you have oh something God. else you want to add to that? I'm so glad I don't have to. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm really on point. <laughs> I mean, that's... Exactly what we said. People own businesses for a long time. And even though they may be delegating and they have people working for them, a lot of critical decisions they that they consider very critical, they think they can only do themselves. So there's a process where you have to kind of unlink yourself and create a process or a procedure where the decision-making can be handed off to someone else. And it doesn't have to be executive. It could be something as simple as doing quotes, like a company that produces a product and they normally produce quotes to the customers before they get the invoices. Well, you can teach someone to do the quotes and you're not going to go broke. You just need to sit with them on the first few ones and they have to come back to you on the more complex quotes, but you can teach someone how to do that. And then you don't have to go and hire an estimator, your assistant manager or the floor manager who knows all the products and maybe some of the vendors can help do the quotes. And then you start shifting that. And then all of a sudden you have five, six, seven hours a week free. And then you've already unlinked. Okay, now you have time to attend the grandkids events Friday afternoon or whatever. I mean, that's a quality of life. Why do you want to have a business if you want to spend your whole life there? And let's not see, you've already missed out on your kids. Now you're going to miss out on your grandkids too. So we want to bring that value to people to show them, look, here's one way that they can start regaining your time. And then so, and that's just the first step. You just do it again and again and again until 
you have taken yourself out of the equation. You're focusing more on growing the business. You're finding new markets. Then you can hire people to do more work. And then you can hire someone to take over for you as a director or CEO. And then all of a sudden, your business is bigger. And you have an executive running it. And you can sell it. And so that's selling it for 500000 which is maybe equal to your, your gross profit or whatever, or your net profit times two. Now you can sell it for two, three million. And that makes a huge difference in your retirement. Very, very good. So uh, I've interviewed quite a few business owners and professionals. Nobody ever set out to go, you know what, I'm going to start this business and work 90 hours a week for the rest of my life. <laughs> and you know, honestly, most of the time they didn't start off on day one. They, they might have in the first few weeks, especially in certain industries. Like if you're a software company, it's not uncommon to start a company and expect to oh. be like, excuse my French, but balls to the wall for, for the first six months to get the product. What happens is that tends to never go away. So th th for them, they're always at that long hours and trying to get run their unicorn hunting. So they're trying to, to run out, run out right. the profit as fast as they can or the growth. The business owners in your typical brick and mortar, they never started off that way. To be honest, I always joke around, say they're usually accidental entrepreneurs, meaning that they did something really good and a buddy says, hey, I'll take one of those. They did something for themselves or, or something on the side for somebody and they like realized that people paid for it. So the guy who owns a mechanic shop, he was a mechanic at his own office, at his own job. And you know, uncle's car breaks down, rings it over to his house, he fixes it. And the next thing you know, the next guy does. And the next thing he's got all these side gigs, he's making enough money. He's like, I should really do this on my own. Next thing they know, now they got to learn finances, right? They got to do, get the stuff, all those receipts to the CPA so you can do taxes. And then, you know, I was like, okay, I got to do my own sales. I bought two employees on. If I don't get some more cars in here, I'm going to go. Now he's pulling 90 hour weeks when he thought he was just going to be able to like replace his income with the side, side hustle. I mean, there's a gotcha or a caveat, okay? And that is, if you're at the point where you're completely exhausted or you're, you have ailments or illnesses that are forcing you to, to sell the company, then it's just, it's too late to grow it. I mean, this is like a one to two year time frame that you have to oh, look yeah. at. So if someone is, wants to sell their business at a certain time in the near future, the time to start developing it into a larger business and separating yourself from the business has to happen now. You got to start now because you never know when, when something's going to happen that's going to, I mean, I say this very passionately because just last Thursday, a friend of mine called me. We we're friends from a while back. I helped them acquire property. And he's like, can you please just review this offer for my building that I got? He wants to sell it and his business is in it. And he owns a building in the business. And then I regret not being in touch with him because I could have helped him. But he's at a point now where he's had an injury and he has like, he's developed some asthma issues and he just wants to sell the business. But yeah. he's not selling the business. He's selling the assets the business owns, the production assets, and he's selling the, the building. Now, the real estate offer he got was very fantastic. It was a good price and they offered him time to liquidate his business. So... I told him this is a good deal and so forth. It was, it was a very good deal. But I was like, well, do you want to sell the business? And that's when he told me about his health issues and so forth. Uh -huh. If I was in touch with him, which is my bad for not following up after so many years. I mean, I'm talking 15 years ago, we did this deal. I would have been able to help him transform the business, get people, hire people, keep it at over a million dollar in net income. And then 
who would done a, a lease the building to the business and sell the business. And now he just owns the building and then he can sell the building. So he could have made a million in the business and a million on the building. So instead of just yeah. making less than 700,000 or so on the building itself now, See, way too long to transform yeah. it something really cool coming up. It's called the Business Acquisition Virtual Summit, July 26th through the 28th. Join Jeremy Harbour, Roland Fraser, Carl Allen, and 20 other leaders in mergers and acquisitions. The event is the 2023 Business Acquisition Virtual Summit. How to Exit is proud to sponsor this 100% online event packed with three full days of expert talks from the world's most recognized acquisition entrepreneurs. Register now at businessacquisitionsummit.com. Be sure to check out their option to do the upgrade to VIP virtual networking so you can meet and talk with the other participants. Don't miss out now on the M&A event of the year. That's businessacquisitionsummit.com. I've seen it happen. I've seen people, like one of the first companies I came across when I got in the space was an electrical company. And unfortunately, their owner passed away. Oh. It was commercial electricians. They had 20, 27 trucks or something like that. And after see what they went through, by the time the court had made a decision that the wife could actually take over and sign something, he didn't have any second signature oh, authority wow. on any checking accounts. Nobody had the authority to write payroll out of it. It oh. was just basically he did the accounting, payroll, and run this company and had a massive coronary and passed away. That said, it, they sold it for trucks and assets. There was nothing left by the time that you get through probate court That's and the probate horrible. court issues authority to do something. And I pulled together a team thinking maybe we could solve this. We're a fast action team. If something happens to your company, we'll step in and run it until, until we can get it sold. And we'll come in, we'll learn real fast. Usually there's somebody yeah. there, like a general manager, somebody has been there for 15 years that can do it. But I talked to six different attorneys and none of them thought we could get like expedite getting the authority to, to touch the finances. So I was like, okay, there's the option. Like we bring our own money, right? We raise funds, we bring our own money, we step in and we run it on our money until we get the court approval to switch over. And all the attorneys like, that's not, not a good anything. idea because you only yeah. need one one person on that probate court to not agree with you being the guy that ends up running it on the afterwards or acquiring it that you did all the work for nothing so i never could figure out a solution for it but i think there's a play out there in the exit world to basically to be the a company that has a fast action team that can just step in and run something and keep it going until to save these companies I mean, if you're going to try and do it on your own and just to bring it, first off, you have to get your ducks in a row, your mm -hmm. legal paperwork. It happened to my mother. Her husband passed away. She didn't have anything in her name, not even the car. And it took her a while, which was a burden on her because she had to take care of everything else, burying him and all that stuff. You don't get your ducks in a row. Anything could happen at any time. You have no idea. You at least have to have a will or a something. Power of attorney. I'm not a lawyer, of course, so don't take my word for it, but go to your lawyer, go to somebody, get it done, go online, make a will. But yeah. the thing is, if you have your business and you know that you want to set yourself up, it could take you several years to do it on your own. And if you have, I'm making a, a pitch here, I guess, you have us come in or people like us, we have this knowledge, we know how to do it. We can go in and do an audit in very quickly. A few weeks time get an audit we know where the gaps are we know what to do and so instead of three four five years of you trying to do it on your own you've got it 
in a year or two, maybe if there's problems, and you're at a place where you actually can get that exit or you can get the cash out of it that you deserve without being hung out to dry or losing. There's a side effect here that you guys can help people do also. There's a, I call it the trade my car in effect. So you think about this, you get ready to like to go get a new car. Right before you go trade a car in, what do you usually do to get the highest trading value? You either detail it yourself or you have it detailed. You make everything look spick and span. Yeah. And then on your way there, you're like, well, this car isn't that bad. It's all clean and nice now. Same thing happens with these businesses. If they get in there with me, work with you guys, and two years down the road, they only have to go to work on Fridays to check in with the general manager and do the do the check in and like we're more of a chairman of the board mode, right? You're kind of retired, and you're still getting the benefits. You still might have even a leadership role in some in setting direction, the setting vision. Yeah. And one of the other things that just came to mind as you were saying, when a business closes, it's not just the owner that's impacted. Aside from the owner's family. You've got the whole community. You've got the employees. You've got all the customers that are adversely impacted because they have to go and look for other jobs. They've got to look for other, sorry, was it? they've got to look for, they've got to go someplace else and the community loses out because as, even if you don't have a brick and mortar. So there we go. Awesome. A lot of these owners we talk to, yeah. a lot of them care about their employees a lot. So, I mean, what you're saying, they'd rather not just do that but sometimes they don't know any better they're like oh man i'm just tired and i can't do this anymore so the next thing i think i want to ask you or bring up is we talked about people trying to exit and getting the highest multiple for their business and stuff what i'm currently seeing in the marketplace and i've been talking to a lot of private equity and companies that raise capital usually what's going on at the pe level and the capital raise level is kind of there's a little bit of a mirror going on in the levels below it. The people buying companies with SBAs and stuff, not fully, but whatever's true up there, you better watch out for. So here's what I'm going to tell you. Right now, there's still trillions of dollars of dry powder sitting in all these funds, these people who have raised money to acquire companies, these private equity funds, private equity companies, and they're still buying, but they're buying things that are risk adverse or riskless or whatever. They're basically lower risk. That's the word I'm looking for. It's scared money. So when PE gets scared money, so do a lot of other people. And what I mean by scared money is they're not going to, they're not unicorn hunting right now. They're looking for companies that have steady growth. They're not on a declining market. They're looking at your trailing 12 month average for your 24 or 36 month average of your cash flows and your profits and stuff. Are you trending up or trending down? Are you well-managed? All the stuff that you guys Mm -hmm. help people do used to be a selling point. You'll get a higher multiple if all those are in place. Now could actually kill the deal if you don't. The private equity and the guys out there, and a lot of times even the strategic buyers, your competitors that would buy you, they're going to look at that too because it is a buyer's market buyers can be a little choosier and they don't, I guess the best way I could call our economy right now is uncertain with the uncertainty in the current market. They're looking for sure deals. They're moving to things like things that are less impacted by the economy. So there's a lot of big dental roll-ups going on, right? Cause you can get your teeth fixed one way or other. A lot of pet stuff, veterinary services, pets. I bet your chocolate roll-up would do just fine. People are going to eat chocolate, whether the economy is good or bad, right? It's a passion yeah. product, right? I've been in up times and I've been in down times. I've been in good economies and I've been bankrupt. I don't ever remember giving up chocolate because I didn't have any money. <laughs> I think that one's okay. That said, how do you guys address that? How do you guys like, look, if you're considering 
the possibility of a sell or you just want to run your company more efficiently so that when you're ready to sell, it's there. How do you guys address the fact that you almost have to now? Because like, it's not a difference between, it used to be the difference between a 2X multiple and a strategic purchase of a 5 or 6 or 7X multiple. Now it's a difference between that 6 or 7 multiple or not getting any offers at all. You're just not ready. And I've seen that. I've talked to people who are in that position where they're not getting. I think the point that I'm thinking about is that when you try to value your own company, and this is a mistake that I see people do, especially if they're working with brokers, because they get an unrealistic valuation and they haven't taken the time to, and they can't, you can't really be objective about your own company. So you have to get someone else to help you because you see it one way, it's your baby. You could see it as your life work. It's your legacy. So you have a lot of vested interest in it and some filters that stop you from being able to be objective about what's broken, what's working really well. Where do you need to shift? Who needs to go? Who do you need to promote? What products do you have online? And maybe you have a pet product that just, it's making everything lag. So bringing somebody else in is kind of vital to, to do that audit, to see where you stand and where you need to fill things in. First off, like Waleed was talking about earlier, if you're running the show, nobody's going to want to buy you. I mean, just flat out. They're not going maybe you'll find a relative. If you're an operator, you're only going to sell to another operator. But it's not an easy sale either because you're still going to want to, they're going to want you to be around teaching them for a good several months, three, six year. And then they need to be paid. That having that third party look in is critical. I grew up, my father was a painter. He worked in a paint factory during the day, making paint or selling paint at the calendar. I worked there from summer jobs when I was probably 14, 15, all the way up until I joined the military until I was 20. And then we painted houses on the side. And I call it painter's vision. When you paint a house, especially if you're doing rollers and brushes and doing a lot of it manually, you'll paint one side. Like I would paint one side one of my crew members or my dad would paint the other side of the other wall. We'd go and we'd switch and we'd look at each other and like, look at all this stuff you missed. But if you looked at that wall and step back, I used to try to like, I would try like, okay, I'm going to, it's time to tell my dad to come by and check my side. I'm going to go check his. But before I do, I'm going to make sure I didn't miss anything this time. That way he's got nothing to do because he'd give me a hard time. And I would go over that thing left and right. And then sure enough, every single time he would come over and like, look at all this mess. And when he pointed at you, you're like, how did you find that so fast? I stared at this freaking side of the house for 20 minutes. Your mind believes something's done correctly, and there's some trick it plays inside of there. It sees what you want it to see, and it's almost optical illusion level. I mean, a lot of people don't believe it exists, but it exists on anything. If you write a paper, you don't see the flaws until somebody reviews no, it, you edits it, because your mind will actually put the words in that you think are there. You'll fill in the gaps. And same thing happens with these business. You go in there, you built this, it's just your business is your baby. It's your legacy. It's everything. The employees are your family. You've got blind spots. You've got things that are happening on the day-to-day basis that you either can't see or refuse to see or don't realize that are important to see that a third party is going to be able to look at and go, any buyers want to want this fixed. Yeah. I mean, like the valuation aspect of things in the lower market and the smaller companies, there's, I mean, I don't want to belittle business brokers. Business brokers, many of them do a great service in helping companies sell, but there are so many cases I've seen, like I looked at one just yesterday, I got some feedback about a potential company, and this is in our cabinet roller project. This company that was offered for sale had a little under $200,000 in net profit before taxes and whatever. And then they had 
a hundred thousand dollars in ass I'm gonna call them ass backs from now on and ad backs <laughs> and add back the owner's income salary taking that add back car utilization and a bunch of other stuff which was a hundred thousand dollars so now the seller's discretionary income or seller's discretionary benefit is three hundred thousand so now they okay let's value this at 2x so now it's six hundred thousand and then let's add a little bit for negotiation so the price is six hundred twenty thousand well no if you want to sell your business, that is you're selling a job. But most people aren't looking for a job to buy. They're looking for a business right. to buy. So right. if I want to buy a business, I want to put someone to run it. So the cost of someone running it and being there full time needs to stay in there and the benefit stay in there. So the net profit is 200. 200 times two is 400,000. That's the value. I know it's a very small business size I'm talking about, but when these boomers or baby boomers or other people want to sell their business and they go to a business broker and they get this unrealistic price that they can sell their business for, it sits and it doesn't sell. They just get disappointed by that. So you got to value it properly. And, and I think that's a disservice some business brokers do. And that's a service we want to provide. We want to say, look, it's kind of almost a slap in the face, but a come to Jesus moment. Like its value is this much. Are you okay with this? It's like, they may say yes, but they're like, no, I can't retire on that. All right, well, then here's how we bring it up. I'll tell you what I've been seeing, and I haven't looked. I've been doing only online right now. It's a totally different world. I'm only dealing with single operators, one or two people things. But the last full-size business I looked at was a broker-based deal. And we did the, we got to the point where we, I looked at their valuation with their offer. It was interesting. Signed the NDA, started getting paperwork, got to talk to the business owner. And within an hour of it, a conversation with him had to call back to, after talking to the business owner, broker, let me talk to him on my own, which was cool. But when I called the broker back, I was like, look, you really didn't do this guy of service. He says, why? And he says, you've got an ad back on the, for his salary, but you didn't take away the fact that this guy's doing four jobs. Like, what do you mean doing four jobs? He's pulling 90 to 100 hour weeks. He's the CEO. You added $110,000 in the salary for CEO to pay, replace an operator. But he's also the lead sales guy. They only have a junior sales rep. It's him and this other guy. So he does almost 85% of the sales that come into this company are with him. You didn't ask him what his wife did for the business, but she's an accountant on the side. And she comes in in the evenings after her own accounting job and pulls 10, 15 hours a week doing his books and accounting. So now you need an accountant. That's not on the paperwork, right? I don't have that. Is his wife going to continue working for me for free? We had this long talk about all these different roles he's done. So yeah, you added back $110,000 in salary or one twenty-five or whatever it was, but you didn't take away that there's four, three other missing roles that are $80,000 jobs each. You added back 140, but we need to subtract $240,000 because they're doing the job of these other people. And I don't have that. And that happens a lot, right? A lot of the times a yeah. business broker won't look at all the different, look at the org chart, figure out what's supposed to be on the org chart and go, this is a business. Somebody has to be doing the accounting. So who's doing all the book work? Oh, my wife does that on the nights and weekends. How many hours does that take? She's going, oh, 10, 15 hours a week. Okay. There was just a list of stuff like that. He didn't have yeah. a janitor. He came in on the weekends and cleaned the, the factory floor and cleaned the whole place up himself. Like oh, scrub wow. the bathroom. Him and his wife would scrub the bathrooms, mop the floors. It was kind of a brick and mortar type of manufacturing type of place. But they would sweep the floor. They had people on on the during the weekdays for safety reasons. They would do certain cleanups. But the deep cleans, they would come every weekend and clean the office themselves. Like I'm looking at running this thing remotely if I want it. My complaint in the whole in the business broker world is. They don't look at the org chart. Most of them won't look at the org chart and go, okay, who fills these roles? To run a business, 
X, Y, and Z needs to happen. Who does X, who does Y, and who does Z? And do we account for that in the, the financials? That's spot on, Ron. I mean, that was, that's exactly right on that point. And then the, this multiple, like we said, $200,000, maybe it's worth four hundred. But then if you if you increase the income and the business is now netting, let's say, a million profit, now it's not 2x anymore. Maybe it's going to be 4x. So now it went from a 400000 to a $4 million valuation. It's even more yeah. beautiful than that because now you got – so you know you want to leave, so now you got a full-time sales guy. If all you had to focus on, do you think if you brought a full-size sales guy – to take him out on six adventures that you your next six calls or whatever he sees what you do if he's really a rock star performance if you hired right do you think that you've been pulling 90 hour weeks who do you think's going to do a better job a guy who spends 40 hours a week minimum to to land new deals or you who had five different jobs that you were trying to fit into 90 hours so the company's going to grow that way the second thing is like okay when you get your financial team in now the books look right and you got guys like you like what can we turn in the how can we do things to increase revenue. There's higher multiples on certain types of revenue, right? Is there any recurring revenue model we can input into this? Can we put people on service contracts? Like if you're a heat and air company, service contracts, the recurring revenue on service contracts is higher than the standard multiple for the actual EBITDA. They split yeah. that out and they give them a higher multiple for the recurring revenue. The big PE guys do anyway. So if you look at this stuff and you look at like, Having somebody come in and look at your business from an outside point and go, what did the buyer want? And how long would it take us to engineer that? I think it's a no-brainer to bring somebody in from a third-party view. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because those, all of those things you talk about, they all have to be looked at. And how many of them, if you're doing four or five jobs, even if you're only doing two or three, you still don't have the time to put into, if you have the expertise, which is doubtful for most business owners, just because you need to know so many things, you're not going to have the expertise to go deep on any, especially like creating recurring revenue. That's not a minute. That's going to take you some time. How do you yeah. productize something that you're charging one time, one offs for? How do you keep clients coming back for more on a regular basis and create subscriptions and referral plans? And how do you increase your sales? And how do you enter other markets? How do you enter other product lines? How do you do all of these things that need to be done? How do you acquire new businesses to, to bolt on or boost your business or merge? How do you grow in all of these other aspects when you're spending, even if you're only spending 80 hours a week, that's still exhausting. I'm just saying, say you're spending 60 hours, you're still tired and you're doing something. Do you have an extra 80 hours to put into doing another acquisition or adding another product line? It's a lot of work. And I would say this is, that's a second caveat. We said the first caveat is you can't start doing this right when you want to exit. You got to do it a year or more ahead of time. That's second just... caveat is you have to stop thinking that you have to go it all yourself. Sure, you have employees and sure you have people you can delegate to, but you can't be alone in your mind. You have to open up and let a team come work with you to work on the company with you and get you across the finish line. I think we may sound depressing to some and overwhelming to some people about this valuation issues and the lack of profit and how you can bring it up. It's a lot of work. The caveat is get out of your head. You don't have to do it alone. Like yeah. you have to open up, let a team work with you and share some of that profit, but you're still going to make a lot more than you're going to do it, try and do it on your own before you have that heart attack. One of the first businesses I looked at was a big concrete manufacturer and it fell apart at the very end. You guys heard the story because I told it during the 
our roll up together. One of the reasons fell apart. We actually got our LOI signed and it was a like a dollar down type of deal. Like we weren't given any money up front because they were in big debt with in trouble with the IRS and a bunch of other stuff. But that's what stopped it from going through on the other end was the IRS and one of their bank loans said, no, you can't transfer the assets. We have to, you have to settle with us first. That said, one of the things the owner kept saying to me along the way was like, Hey, this thing doesn't run without me. Like, I don't know how you're going to phase me out. And she's like, it just won't work without me. Like she, she knew everything. She was third generation. Her dad had worked on it after her grandfather built it. Grandpa built it. Dad ran it. Now she's running it. And she's like, it I don't know how this is going to work without me. I'm always putting out fires. And on the, after the IRS told us no, and we had to shut down my last actual interview was like, don't, I told her, don't ever tell another seller that you ever tell another seller that this thing won't run without me. You either got a business that's not sellable, right. Or they're going to want you to stay on forever and you're wanting to retire. And you're no. going to be an employee. Yeah. So, and I told her, I said, yeah. you're going to have to work for the next two and a half years to fix because they were working on paying down the IRS and do other stuff. And what I did is I gave her the attorney that like, we knew we could re- reduce the, I had my guy, one of my guys on the team, give her our attorney. Cause we, we knew we could reduce that bill. They never challenged it and she just didn't realize she could. So we had a tax attorney lined up to, to help rectify the 970 something million dollars. I mean, I'm sorry, thousand dollars, almost a million bucks, 978 thousand dollars or something she owed the irs and the, the people think that it's going to hurt them completely when they open up about the problems but when you open up the problems you flush everything out that transparency is going to help you yeah i told her two things one don't ever tell anybody this thing won't run without me and two now that you have to work on this for the next two years fixing the irs take three years or whatever it's going to take with these attorneys helping you work on getting yourself out of that mode because you that's the reason I had to offer you a dollar down and take over your four and a half million dollars of debt on a company yeah. that's doing 13 million of revenue a year. The reason I had to do that is so much risk upon this. Day one, I was coming in with forensic accountants to fix their accounting because it was messed up and a lawyer team to help negotiate the, the tax debt down. I was like, you fix those problems and you've got a business here that should sell for millions, right? I mean, it should, it's very possible. But uh, we'll see where she goes. She's still working on it. But uh, last I heard, I haven't checked in her on in her about five or six months. I say I. I've got one of my guys on the team that calls her every once in a while. But okay. the whole point of the is business owners don't understand that if you're in their day-to-day, the only person that's going to – and you're pulling 60, 80, 90-hour weeks – the only person that can buy that is somebody who's looking for a different job. They're sick of their working for somebody else and they're wanting to come in there and work 68 hour weeks. And it's such a small pool of the buyers. They really are just shooting themselves in the foot. It's a luck game to find that buyer. You need to have someone come and look at your paint job and see yep. where you missed. I'll watch it open yep. up and get that exposed so it can be fixed. And you guys know so many more exit strategies than they ever would be able to find, even a broker, right? Because you guys can come in and do everything from looking at ESOPs, employee stock auction programs, to just a dozen different other things that a broker would probably never offer. I think a lot of people think they can just go to a broker, help them fix it, and get them ready to sell it. And there are broker advisors out there, but there are two different things. There's advisory groups that can really help you do what you need to do. There's broker groups that can actually help sell it at the end or and a lot of brokers try to put the advisor hat on, and quite frankly, most of them don't have the credentials for it. Okay, so how do people find this? I know it's not totally ready yet, but give us a give us some ways that people can reach out to you, find out more about this coursework you're doing, and work with you guys on helping them sell how to exit their wow. own business. I think one of the best ways, if you wanted to get a hold of our mini course when it comes out, if you wanted to go to cashoutwealthy.com, 
and sign up. We'll also have some more information on there to help you understand what we're doing. You can also reach either one of us at our names at LinkedIn. We have our Choco Thrive page on LinkedIn also, which is our chocolate roll-up. So I think those are the best ways. If you wanted to reach either one of us at our names with a dot, gia.salento at cashoutwealthy.com, if you wanted to email me, I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. And I'm sure Waleed Waleed has a dot in the middle of his name at cashoutwealthy.com. We can put that up at the end, Ron. We'll make simpler emails, Waleed at cashoutwealthy and Gia at cashoutwealthy. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I'll put that up in the end or make sure it's in the show notes for you guys who are driving. You don't have to write that down. We'll put it in the yeah. show notes. So last question here. Now this is individually. If somebody, so Waleed will go with you first. You're on the spot. If somebody can only remember three things from the show today, what would you have them remember as far as mergers and acquisitions go? All right. Number one, start preparing now when you want to sell. Number two, it's okay to open up and think about your business in terms of that you are not the most important person in the world for it, that you can delegate everything you do. And then number three is you really don't have to go it alone. Okay. And what are yours? You can't use the same ones. The good ones. No. (laughs) Nope. You can't use the same ones. Three takeaways that you'd want people to know. I made it harder for Gia. She has to go after you. Yeah. There's a way to do it and keep your options open. Don't close your doors because you're frustrated. Reach out and ask for help. I think, is that one? That's probably one. (laughs) But really, that is the main one. Ask for help. And I know a lot of people don't like to ask for help. I hate it. And they say men are worse at it than women. I don't think it's true. I think everybody, nobody likes to ask for help. Maybe some people do. But number two, you have to be, I hate to say it this way because it sounds kind of pessimistic, but you have to understand that right now it is a buyer's market. And don't have the exit dictate to you. You choose what kind of exit you're going to have. Don't be sitting, don't have your exit be at your desk, failing your family. Decide what it's going to be and make it happen. All right. So one more time, how do people reach you? And we'll call that a show. So uh, Waleed, if somebody just wants to like, Waleed's a really cool guy. I want to connect with him and see, keep track of what Waleed's doing in the world. How do you want him to do that? Where do you hang out? Cashoutwealthy.com. That's what we're, we're that's where people want to find us. Okay. How about you, Gia? Is that where you want them to go? Do your email on cashoutwealthy.com? Yeah. Or, yeah. You know? It's simple. G-I-A at cashoutwealthy.com. In case they're not reading, in case they're listening. G-I-A okay. at cashoutwealthy.com or Waleed, W-A-L-I-D at cashoutwealthy.com. Awesome. And yeah. we'll call that a show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. 
ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision-makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now